So if you know God as your good, good father, say amen. amen. Neat song, isn't it? In fact, it's, I think it's inspired by the very book that we're studying uh, during our series here, in the book of Galatians. For in Galatians chapter 4, Paul writes, And because you are children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Paul wants to remind us that God is a good, good father. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Galatians chapter 3. It seems to be a common fad these days to have a great movie come out, right? And then it's followed up by a, used to be a sequel, but now they're prequels, right? They, is, is if they couldn't figure out how to drag on the story, they have to back up and say, what, what's the back story? Okay, well, this morning's sermon is going to be a little bit of a prequel. We were going to back up a verse from what we looked at last time. But I do want us to have our minds wrapped around this entire paragraph that Paul writes. So if you have your Bibles open, turn them to Galatians chapter 3 as I read verses 1 through 6. O foolish Galatians... Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Dear Heavenly Father, God, you are a good, good Father. And as we open your word today that was penned at the hand of Paul, May we be mindful of that. May we recognize, God, that it is through your love and through the love of Christ that we are called your children. And as a good, good father, God, you are not a taskmaster, but you are one who pours out love freely upon us so that we may return that to you through a life of love. And God, may that truth become ever clear as we look at this passage this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So last week we did look closely at verses 2 and 3 of this passage. It was pointed out that these two verses highlight the main issue Paul is confronting in Galatians. These two verses also expose the confusion that led the Galatians to believe the false teaching. This false teaching has been dubbed the Galatian heresy. Because these verses are so integral to understanding Paul's letter to the Galatians, and because they are so integral to understanding what is known as the Galatian heresy, I would like to review briefly for you this morning some of the points from last week before jumping into our sermon. You see, typically the Galatian heresy has been described as a heresy of salvation by works. 
Others have dubbed the heresy as the idea that a Christian had to convert to Judaism to be a true Christian, to have a right relationship with God. Both of those descriptions have been used to define what we're calling the Galatian heresy. I'm not quite so convinced, though, that that is the essence of the Galatian heresy, the essence of the false teaching that they had bought into. If it was, I think Paul's letter could have been a lot shorter. I think our sermon series could have been a lot shorter. If that was the truth, then quite frankly, this book holds little relevance for most of us. Rather, I think that the Galatian heresy is actually much more appealing to us as Christians. I think it is something that is much more easily for us to fall into the trap of as Christians. You see, the Galatian heresy was much more subtle than the false idea that a person could be saved by works. Remember, when we looked at verse 2, that salvation isn't the topic at hand in this paragraph, nor do I think it is the topic at hand in the letter of Galatians. Remember, we said that Paul does not ask the question, did you receive the Spirit? No, rather he asks, how did they receive the Spirit? In other words, he is going on the shared assumption that his readers had already believed in Christ and were followers of him as his disciples. They were already indwelt by the Holy Spirit and sealed for the day of redemption. In short, they were already saved. They already were counted righteous before God and fully accepted by him by grace through faith. Therefore, when Paul asks how it was that they received the Spirit, he gives them two possible answers. Don't we all love multiple choice? Yeah, at least you got a 50-50 chance of getting it right. Well, he gives them two possible answers. He asks them if it was received by the Spirit or received by works. He asks them how did they receive the Spirit. This question was really rhetorical in nature because both the Galatians and he knew that it was through the hearing of faith that they had received the Spirit. So Paul asks a follow-up question that actually exposes the real issue. He asks, having begun by the Spirit, thus answering his first question, are you now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, he is asking them, Since you were saved through the Holy Spirit, by grace, through faith alone, can you now be perfected through the flesh by works of the law? You see, the real issue wasn't salvation by works. The real issue was the Galatians believed they needed to live their new life of righteousness through flesh by following rules and laws. To use the theological terms that were introduced last week, They believed they were justified by the Spirit, but sanctified by the flesh. So I left the latter illustration up behind me. So for those of you who weren't here last week, now know that that ladder was planted on purpose. It's 
not part of the construction or reconstruction project going on behind these doors, though I've been trying to figure out how to work those into an illustration. If anybody has an idea, you know, work, we're, we're a work under construction, maybe, I don't know. But I wanted to draw our attention to the illustration behind me. It's a simple illustration. We have two walls, the one on the right labeled faith and the one on the left labeled law. Also, in the illustration, there is a ladder, and the ladder is leaning against one of those walls. What you can't see, but I think is critical to this illustration, is an understanding that both of those walls actually wrap around to the floor. So what the ladder is resting on is one and, sa one and the same with the wall that it is leaning against. Okay? Now, the contact point of that ladder to the wall is what I'm calling justification. Justification is that verdict that God has passed upon his children of not guilty. Justification, that not guilty verdict is what allows us to stand rightly before God and therefore is what provides the proper foundation for this ladder to rest on. Now the ladder represents the theological term of sanctification which simply is our new life in Christ lived out by the Spirit. And so as we walk up the ladder, it symbolizes the life that we live in Christ. Now the reason for the two walls is because there's a confusion about what to lean that ladder against. Right? Do we lean the ladder against the law wall, rules, guidelines, traditions, or do we lay it against the wall of faith? And the point that was made last week was that the ladder has got to lean against the wall on the floor that it is sitting upon, right? You can't set it against or near one wall and lean it against the other. And this is the point that Paul is making in his letter. He says, should you wish to start by faith and move the top of the ladder to law, you actually have to pick the whole ladder up and move it. The Christian life cannot start one way and finish the other way. It has to start the same way that it ends. And so as we climb that ladder, where does our safety and security come from? Where do we find that security? It's by leaning into the wall. As we lean into the faith wall, we're leaning into the spirit. We're leaning into faith. As we climb higher and higher, it was pointed out, it gets more scary. The ladder can get steeper, more unstable. And so we lean, lean by faith. And Paul wants us to live our Christian lives leaning by faith into that wall of faith. Rather than backing up and being drawn toward that law of wall, which will cause our ladder to fall. So I reintroduce you to that, one, because the point is very central to the book of Galatians, but two, because it's going to come up later on in the, in the message this morning. But you may be thinking, what is the big deal? Isn't salvation really what is important? I mean, really, if we've got the ladder sitting on the floor of faith, what's the big deal about where it's leaning? If a person is saved... What does it matter if they are living a righteous life by following laws, rules, guidelines, traditions, 
or following it by walking in the faith of the Spirit. The results are the same, right? We get along with our neighbors. It looks good. The reputation to the outside world is the same. And what does it really matter? Because in the end, a saved person goes to heaven. So what is the big deal? Is it a big deal? Well, let's look at this passage and see if it is a big deal. And if it is, let's try to find out why it is a big deal. So while last week's message was focused on verses 2 and 3, the prequel, verse 1. Let's focus on verse 1. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Paul calls the Galatians foolish. He calls them mindless, non-thinking. Some translations even use the word stupid. He's implying that if they would have spent a little mental energy, just stopped, paused, and thought for a moment, what they were believing, they would have avoided falling into believing this heresy. And because they were unthinking, Paul started to hammer them with questions. He wants to get their mental juices flowing. And so you see in this paragraph, he's asking question after question after question to get them to think, to realize. But he's not only calling them stupid, he's also accusing them of being bewitched. He says they're under a mind-controlling spell. Their thinking is now being controlled by someone else. They're not thinking independently anymore. Now, you've picked it up. Paul's tone is harsh. And Paul knows this. Anyone who's tried to communicate by email or letter or worse, text, knows it is very hard to communicate your heart. It is hard to communicate difficult subjects in writing. And Paul knows this. In fact, in chapter 4, verse 20, he says, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. He knows that his, his, his confusion, his amazement, his speechlessness has caused him to pick words that just do not communicate his heart. But they do communicate the seriousness of the situation in fact, Paul even anticipates that his readers will see him as an enemy. Chapter 4, verse 16, he writes to them, Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? You see, he knows his message of truth and the gravity of his words will hurt. Sometimes the truth hurts. He recognizes that many of his readers will soon avoid the truth by rejecting Paul as an enemy than to look into the mirror of that truth. In my preparations for this message and the series as a whole, I've been reading uh, one of the commentaries written by a man named Baruch Meotz. He's an Israeli uh, Messianic Jew. He was born in, uh, in the United States, in Boston, I think it was, but then at the age of 10, moved to Israel lived there for most of his life, so English is his second language. But he has some very intriguing insights into this passage. 
He understands the human heart. He understands the human tendency. And in the context of this verse that we just read, he writes this. He says, we love ourselves too much. That is why we tend to attribute to ourselves abilities we do not have and why we view anyone who thinks us otherwise as an enemy. This was Paul's fear. That is why we turn every disagreement into a personal conflict out of which we must emerge victorious and in the course of which we are entitled to be offended and to offend. Having lost an awareness of the importance of truth and in light of the common insistence that anyone's view is as good as anyone else's, we no longer dare speak clearly. But those who do prefer to insult rather than present a clear case. Everything has become a matter of he loves me, he loves me not, as if we're the center of the universe. This was Paul's concern when he wrote this letter to the Galatians. Will they see him as an enemy? And as such, will they feel offense? And as such, will they spew offense back to him and ignore what he's saying? Baruch goes on, however, to say the, teacher, the scriptures teach us something different. He says, the scriptures teach us to prefer truth over any imagined horror and to see our honor in that we are more concerned with truth than with ourselves. That is why Paul could argue so forcefully with Peter, as we saw in chapter 2. That is also why he does not hesitate to write the Galatians as he does. And they, both Peter and the Galatians, did not choose to be offended. Instead, they learned from Paul's rebuke. Peter corrected his ways, and the Galatians preserved this letter, which we now have today. Now, Baruch is not the only person who has this insight into the human heart. The wisest man to, to live, aside from Jesus Christ, also had an insight into this. And since he is wise, he's able to pare it down into a much shorter saying, in Proverbs 27, verses 5 through 6, King Solomon writes, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse or abundant are the kisses of an enemy. Here Solomon identifies two individuals, a friend and an enemy. Here the friend says what we don't want to hear but really need to. And the enemy gives us what we want, kisses, but not what we truly need. Paul also identifies two people in verse 1. However, neither of them he names specifically. The first person that he draws their attention to are given the pronoun who. He says, who has bewitched you? The first person he wishes to draw their attention to is this bewitcher or these bewitchers. And he asks them to identify by asking the question, who? Who are they? Think. Who taught you this? He wants them to think about who it was that filled their heads with false teaching. 
In chapter 1, verse 7, Paul says that the false teachers were, quote, some who trouble you, unquote. They were troublers. These false teachers came in with teaching that stirred the Galatians up a bit and troubled their understanding. These teachers came with disruptive ideas and caused a state of trouble or doubt among the Galatians. Because of their disruptive teaching, the Galatians were led to doubt Paul's validity as an apostle and the validity of the gospel message he preached. This is why Paul had to spend the first two chapters defending his apostleship and the divine origin of the message that he did preach. Casting doubt on the messenger and the message is a common tactic of troublers, of disruptors, of bewitchers. To sell their aberrant teaching, they must first get their victims to doubt what they already believe and to doubt from whom they received the teaching. We find this common in classrooms, most specifically in our colleges and universities. But for those of us not in the classroom and in the college and universities, we find it prevalent among talking heads on the internet as well. These disruptors first try to get their victim to doubt the intentions, the credibility of their victim's source of authority for what they have been taught. If the, dis if the uh, disruptor is successful in discrediting their victim's source of authority, then it's easy for them to successfully get their victim to doubt what they believe. And this is what happened in Galatia. These troublers in Galatia were likely Jews with clout from Jerusalem. And this wouldn't have been the first time Jewish influencers followed Paul and the other apostles to disrupt the work being accomplished through their preaching and teaching of the gospel. In fact, in chapter 2, Paul recounts an episode in Jerusalem where troublers identified as false brothers were secretly brought in among the Christians to spy out the freedom that they had in Jesus Christ with the goal to bring them back into slavery of rules and laws. Then later in that chapter, Paul recounts another episode where certain men from James of the circumcision party showed up and convinced Peter, though he was living like a Gentile, to separate from Gentiles when eating. So Paul confronts him directly to his face. Paul understood firsthand what these troublers, disruptors, bewitchers were like. He knew how they operated. He now wanted the Galatians to consider who they were and how they operated. So he asked them to think about who it was that bewitched them. Through Paul's writings, he knew he was producing faithful wounds. He knew the kisses of the troublers were abundant. The troublers kiss profusely with flattery. For Paul says in chapter 4, verse 17, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They were being built up by these troublers, but not for a good end. The flattering was used to draw the Galatians away from the apostolic teaching they received and to gain followers themselves. They wanted to steal the sheep, so to speak. Paul says they use flattery because, quote, they want to shut you out 
that you may make much of them. The troublers made much of the Galatians because they wanted to grow their movement among the disciples of Jesus. The troublers desired the personal success gained from pulling disciples of Jesus away from their churches, their friends, and their families so that they could boast in their growing movement. These troublers were not gathering new sheep from wild pasture lands. Rather, they were targeting the sheep already in Jesus' fold. The troublers realized they could also be successful even if they didn't separate the sheep from their fold. For they counted it a success if they could just get the Galatians to adopt circumcision. In chapter 6, verse 13, Paul says, For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Now, I said in this verse that Paul identifies two people. The first ones were the bewitchers, that he wanted the Galatians to consider. The second, again, not named, but obvious to the reader who it is. He says the second person is the one who says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Galatians know Paul is talking of himself. He gets them to think about two sources of authority. You have the bewitchers and you have Paul. He says, I want you to consider who? Then consider myself, Paul. Most commentators believe in this verse that Paul is referring to vivid imagery that he used describing Jesus and his crucifixion. And by this imagery, the Galatians were able to see, as it were, Jesus and his crucifixion portrayed before them. I don't find this explanation um, convincing. Rather, I find it unlikely that Paul portrayed Christ crucified through eloquent words and dramatic descriptions. I don't think that is the point in his wording here. For eloquence was not Paul's style, and for good reason. To the Corinthians, Paul writes, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And then, later in that book, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So when Paul says, it was before your eyes that Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified, I don't think he was using flowery terms. So if Paul did not dramatize Jesus' crucifixion, then why did he say, before your eyes? I think there are three likely reasons that he did this and for a powerful purpose. The first likely reason is to remind them that he was personally present with them. They met. They lived together for a time. They had a relationship. He was among them. He was before their eyes. The second likely reason is because when he was with them, he suffered a bodily ailment that seemed to have included his eyes. 
In chapter 4, verses 13 through 15, we read, You know it was because of a body ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. I think by Paul referring to before their eyes, he's drawing attention to this, this condition that created a connection between them. It shows the bond of love that they had for one another, for they were willing to gouge out their eyes if they could to help Paul. And the third likely reason, I think, that Paul said before your eyes was because his bodily appearance bore physical marks of persecution that he received at the preaching of the gospel. At the close of the letter, he draws the attention to this, and he says, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. So, Paul wants the Galatians to consider who the troublers are, and who Paul himself is. He wants the Galatians to remember the authentic, loving, and sacrificial relationship they had with Paul. He wants the Galatians to compare that with the impersonal, passing relationship the Galatians had with the troublers, with the disruptors, the bewitchers. Their relationship with the troublers was not born out of sweat, blood, and tears of ministry, but rather of doubt-casting, belief-troubling, and self-serving flattery. So now I want to draw your attention back to the illustration of the ladder behind me, because there is one final component to that illustration that has not been pointed out. And I wonder if you can see what that is. You see... That final component happens to be the cross on the wall. Yes, it wasn't a prop set up by me, but it's there nonetheless. And that cross stands between the two, showing that it is at front and center of this debate, this heresy going on in Galatia, and is at front and center at the decision between law and faith. So that brings us to our final point of the sermon and to the title of the sermon, which is Christ Crucified, Why It Matters. Paul put Christ crucified at the center of his message when he was in Galatia, for he portrayed it before their eyes. And here, Paul puts Christ crucified right at the center of his confrontation to the Galatians. The crucifixion of Jesus is at stake in this controversy. We asked earlier if it really mattered all that much if saved people live out their lives of righteousness based on law-keeping and rules or not, so long as they were living righteously. Well, to Paul, it matters a whole bunch. Why? Because the difference between leaning your ladder against the faith wall and leaning your ladder against the law wall is the Christ. That is in the space between the two. He writes in Galatians chapter 2, 
verses 19 and 20, the following. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, when we are united with Christ through faith, we are united with him in his death. We are crucified with him. And we are united with him in his resurrection. Being crucified with him, we no longer live ourselves, but our life is now Christ living in us. When we are united with Christ through faith, we now live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. It is through the cross that we die to the old way of living according to the flesh. Paul says in Galatians 5, 24, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In a similar passage to the Corinthians, we read in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Unless we die with Christ, our flesh and its passions remain alive. We have no new way to live in the spirit by faith. We are doomed to fail keeping any kind of law. You see, the only way to pass from the law wall to the faith wall is through the cross. The cross is the only way. The price that Christ paid for our sins is the only way to leave the law wall and move to the faith wall. And Paul says, why would you want to pass back through that cross to go to the law wall? He says, I am amazed. You're bewitched. Why would you want to pass back through the cross? Why would you want to make the cross of no effect? In fact, he says, if we return to seeking righteous living according to the flesh through keeping of rules and laws, the results are disastrous. By seeking to do what God by grace has already done and what God has already given to us through faith, we actually nullify the grace of God and we make Christ's death pointless. As Paul writes in the next verse, Galatians 2.21, he says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness, that is our sanctification, that is our wall that the ladder is leaning on, if our righteousness were through the law, if we were to place it against rules, laws, traditions, preferences, he says, then Christ died for no purpose. Christ's death brings us to this side, to live by faith, right? And he says, if you swing that ladder the other way, ah, you got to pick the whole thing up, and the cross was purposeless. There was no purpose. In fact, later on in the book, Paul says, you've fallen from grace. Now, this sounds theoretical, 
right, to some degree. But wow, does our flesh and the passions of our flesh just like to roll our sleeves up and get our elbows dirty? We do, right? We like to work. That's the great American dream is, well, maybe not to work anymore, but it used to be to work, to accomplish, to own land, to own a house, that to have things that your hands have accomplished. That is, well, God made us to work, right? Before sin entered the world, work was there. But sin has corrupted the purpose of work. No longer is work a way to serve God, but rather work is now a way to serve ourselves. So let me close by asking some questions. Now I want to ask these questions to two groups of people. The first group is a person who does not know where their ladder is leaning. So I ask, have you been unified, I'm sorry, united to Christ through faith alone? Have you come to the point where you recognize that no amount of law-keeping, no amount of rule-keeping will make you perfect in God's sight? Are you ready to move your ladder from the floor and wall of law and move it to the floor and wall of faith? Are you ready to rest in the freedom of full acceptance before God? And brothers and sisters, those who have been unified to Christ through faith alone, do you trust him alone for your full acceptance before God Or do you still think there's something that you can do to gain favor with God? Are you somehow bewitched into thinking that God will not accept you unless you prove to him somehow that you deserve his acceptance? If so, are you ready to rest in the freedom and full acceptance before God? Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, the power of the cross is often lost on us. God, we we think of the cross as a symbol of our faith. We think of the cross as a a, a rallying cry. We think of the cross as as a decoration, as a piece of jewelry. We think of the cross as a memorial a graveyard, but Lord, we often do not think of what the cross has accomplished, why the cross matters. God, and we thank you that Christ became a curse for us, because cursed is anyone who does not keep your holy standards, which are infinite, perfect. So Christ as our substitute, God, hung on that cross, bearing the shame, bearing the curse in our place, thus allowing us to move our ladder from a ladder of works, a ladder of self-righteousness, a ladder that says, I can merit favor with you if I just try harder. Rather, we get to leave that completely behind, move our ladder to the law, to the wall of faith, to live by the Spirit, to climb, leaning in by the Spirit, to the Spirit of God, by faith, leaning in and climbing. 
Father, I, I pray that the simplicity is not lost on us this morning. May we find great encouragement in the freedom that is found from the feeling of expectations placed upon us by ourselves. Lord, may we cling to the cross. May we climb our ladder of the Christian life that you've given to us by faith, leaning ever so close to Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. And this is his name that we pray. Amen.